stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. It's just gone one o'clock on a Tuesday. That means it's time for the Daily Maverick audio show on cliffcentral.com. I'm joined in studio by the brains trust of the First Thing newsletter, uh, the beauty and the beast. I'll leave it up to you to decide who is who. Uh, John Stupart and Andrea Teagle. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Cool. Uh, John, uh, as editor of FT, you get kept up late at night and early in the morning by things happening around the world. Uh, what were the things that caught your eye that we uh, published today in, in First Thing? Yeah, there was a, a couple of things. Um, there was, there's always the, the, the Ebola thing, but I'm not going to go into too much detail about that since it was simply just the, the CDC changing its rules on how it treats Americans with Ebola, which frankly I think is a little less important to how West Africans treat mm-hmm. each other with mm-hmm. Ebola. Um, but I think probably the the biggest thing which I, I led with this morning was um, Rob Ford's mayorship has now ended. Um, Everyone's favorite mayor. Yeah, I mean he cracks me up. He's 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 a fantastic guy, you know. No, no um, pun intended. No, never crack, perish the thought. You up, right? um, <laughs> but uh, you you could say I'm quite addicted to the Canadian political uh, <laughs> landscape there. So anyway, he's he's no longer the 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 mayor. He didn't run for election. Um, I, I think that might be quite. Can important. you run from rehab? Uh, this, <laughs> is there a stipulation in the in the legislation that says you can't run from rehab? I think looking at Rob Ford, you can run, just not very far or fast. <laughs> Um, for that matter, he had um, shame. He had contracted a rare cancer, which I suspect is um, well. It is the official reason for him not running again for 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 mayorship this year. Um, I, I think if he had run, he would have been utterly utterly decimated in the uh, in the elections anyway. Um, which obviously is, I think, the real reason why he didn't actually run. Um, and uh, he has made noises apparently in four years' time. I think that he wants to rerun. I suppose giving him, you know, the, a new, maybe squeaky clean redemption image. You know, because North America, I guess, in general, loves that. You know, I, I, I don't want to say dark horse image of a, a guy returning from down, being down in the dumps and coming back to 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 ruling Canadian politics in all its glory. But for, uh, for all his faults, you got to give the man points for tenacity and uh, you know just wouldn't lie down throughout this whole thing just kept coming back and kept holding his own and uh, just defined to the end it, like it, a South African politician yeah. he just absolutely refused eventually the Toronto um, uh, a sort of municipal well, I guess equivalent of municipality limited his powers so he couldn't actually inflict too much mm. damage on, on Toronto's uh, uh, political scene during his, his reign as a uh, um, as 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 mayor in chief, but you are right. The uh, Americans, in particular, and I guess we lump the North Americans in like they do. They're Afri- practically Africans, the same right? things. You know, the same know. thing, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, love that phoenix rising from the ashes story. You can only you know imagine him coming back in a couple of years' time. You know, uh, having gone on a banting diet, uh, maybe had, <laughs> maybe had some hair implants, found Jesus, and you know is you know squeaky clean, being clean, you know clean for uh, you know a couple of months or years by then. Yeah. Although maybe his campaign in four years' time will be it's okay. I'm not on crack. I'm on. I'm on straight coke now. It's fine. Yeah, no, no. Weed's <laughs> legal in Colorado. You know, it's not a problem. Let's let, let's move. Um, what else uh, was was news in in first thing today? Well, I think aside from that, there was an interesting um, development where C.J. Shivers, the author of a New York Times article, um, a recent New York Times article that pretty much blew the lid off chemical weapons being found in Iraq. Um, he he did a follow up uh, Q and A um, last night um, as part of the the New York Times, and he was just talking. 
talking about why the American government didn't actually discuss this or talk about it at the time because it's I mean it's a it's a big thing mm-hmm. um, even post fact post Iraq uh, Iraq war now um, the the discovery and destruction of chemical weapons, and I believe there were mustard gas shells in a significant quantity, um, is quite a big. It's quite a big deal, um, and a lot of questions were just asking about why the U.S. government didn't actually disclose this, didn't publicize it at all. Um, and his answer was pretty much to the effect of, "I'm not entirely sure." He he was just as baffled as the rest of us. Now, bear in mind, C.J. Shivers is also author. Of, I believe the correct uh, book was called "The Gun," um, which was also a fantastic. Novel about sort of arms and uh, the, the the world uh, arms trade, I guess, and things. So like this that. would have supported America's or uh, and the UK's um, arguments for going into the war, which was that Saddam had these weapons of mass destruction. So it does mm. seem quite strange that you know, having found some chemical weapons and of this magnitude, that they wouldn't have publicised it and used that in their sort of uh, PR. Uh, PR war against the war on terror. Exactly. I think that's, it's, it's certainly a big deal for, for that specific reason, Silly. Mm-hmm. I think it's, uh, it, it would have been a, at least a, should, I think, in my mind, have been a partial justification. Um, I did some reading on it uh, when, when, um, Shivers' article originally came out, and it, it turned out that a lot of these chemical weapons were simply so unstable that they couldn't take enough time to document them, bring in the chemical and biological mm-hmm. teams to actually destroy the things safely, um, you know, which would have taken days, if not weeks, to actually get the right teams to the right parts of Iraq to do this, um, and simply destroyed them as in where they, they, they lay then and there, which meant it was very, very difficult to get, I think, to document and to account for it. Um, you know, whether that's the whole story, I, I doubt it, quite frankly. I think there's there's a lot more to this. And, I, you know, I think Shivers is on to something quite substantial here. And I think we'll, we'll certainly be hearing more about this in the coming weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it happens over, you know, while everyone's sleeping, I'll, I'll be sure to write about it. <laughs> um, Andrea, one of your uh, roles as a factistician on First Thing is to come up with some weird and wonderful facts to keep it bright and breezy amongst all the death and destruction that usually <laughs> happens overnight. And um, you've got... A, you've got a, a fun fact for us that um, I think in this day and age, had it happened in this day and age, would have trended with a hashtag epic fail. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, this is actually a special fact just for the radio show, so there you go, extra effort. Um, so in 1964, a graduate student by the name of Donald Curry accidentally killed the oldest tree ever known to man. Um, as you do. Yeah. As you do. So, yeah, to this day, there's never been an older tree discovered. Um, and the tree was nicknamed Prometheus and was believed to be almost 5,000 years old. Um, I'm guessing got the nickname after they discovered it was the oldest one around. Which right, was right. Okay, well, I mean, it, it has the nickname from the myth. Um, uh, it, it's supposed to warn against um, uh, mankind's... Um, Endless hunger for knowledge, Don't which can basically fire, lead to all kinds of terrible, literally. detrimental, unforeseen <laughs> effects. So anyway, the student was wandering around what is now the Great Basin National Park, um, and he was trying to get an idea of how old this group of um, great bristle uh, cone pine trees are. Oh, so and not the redwoods. The redwoods are usually no, the ones people them. think of as and big old ones. Mind, well, actually, yeah. these trees aren't even particularly big. They only grow to about six meters. So, I mean, he could really be forgiven for thinking <laughs> that he's not going to be inadvertently stumbling across the oldest tree ever known to man. Oh, wow. And um, anyway, he got his um, increment borer stuck in the tree. So this is the instrument that you insert into the wood and take out a sample so that you can just count the rings on that piece of wood, you know, so as not to destroy the tree. Almost sounds like something you could buy in an Amsterdam sex shop, but (laughs) (laughs) increment borer. 
Well, apparently yeah. it was stuck in the tree and he was trying to get it out for quite some time when a forest ranger came across him and took pity on him and said, you know what, son, that's never going to come out. Let's just chop the tree down. Um, and they proceeded to do that. This is not really his fault either. Afterwards, well, afterwards, while well, counting the rings, you know, you get to around 4,900 <laughs> and you start thinking, shoot, you know, we, we, we may have messed this up. But I mean, on the upside, I guess we never would have known that that was the oldest tree unless they chopped, you know, if, if this hadn't happened. Yeah, I, I, I do believe after that he kind of gave up on uh, the study of, of, of trees and wh- whatever that field of study is I, called. I don't, actually, sure. I don't think he's famous for anything else. So I yeah. suppose Virology. at least he has that. Oh, yeah, I believe um, he uh, he went and studied lakes or something after that. He like moved into something that you can't destroy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> should have just gone into timber fanning. Well, also, I mean, because of him now, the Great Basin National Park um, became the Great Na- um Great oh. Basin National Park, and all those trees are, pro- are protected. So, um, you know, at least, at least something well, positive some, came some of it. Well, some good did come of it, yeah. yeah. Um, you had to kill I, the oldest one to make an example for the yeah. others. Exactly. I, I did uh, also did a little bit of reading about this as well, and I think the um, the the oldest one now that's still alive it now belongs in a different state, and and they're they're quite happy they can lay claim to that. But uh, yeah, very unfortunate for <laughs> yeah. for the poor guy. Um, Andrew, you've done some traveling um, in in the last week or so you were off to Botswana uh, to to go and well monitor and cover the elections that that happened over there yeah, tell us about that I was lucky enough to go with um, Simon Allison who does all the regional um, coverage for Daily Maverick um, it was very very interesting actually we we met up with a journalist who'd done a preview of the elections um, this was on Thursday um, and what was interesting was the people who we spoke to really weren't keen, in fact, to talk about politics at all. Um, they were very jittery, you know, didn't want to be quoted, didn't want their names out there. Um, and as it happened, we managed to get hold of an opposition member for one of the wards um, uh, of one of the, the, the rival parties. Uh, so he wasn't the main leader. Um, uh, his name was Warabile Motaleng. Um, of the Botswana Congress Party, who were the official opposition, although um, in this current election now, um, uh, an umbrella group, um, the Umbrella for Democratic Change, has actually overtaken them. Anyhow, um, he had this crazy story to tell us about how he'd been abducted in the middle of the night, um, stripped down and tortured, basically, and asked about... um, Basically, the names of, of all the members of the party and where they were concentrated, you know, in the different in the different districts. Um, and it was, I mean, it was crazy. He was talking with his neck brace on and had crutches, um, visible scars on his skin, um, and sounded really, really quite afraid. In fact, um, yeah, we. And this is, I mean, this is quite in contrast to the the sort of um, international image that Botswana has as almost mm-hmm. a poster boy for democracy in the region or even, in fact, on the continent. Yeah, and I think it really has been, you know, up until now. This is very, very recent, this turn of events, um, seeing, you know, these these tactics of intimidation um, under Ian Karma's rule. So he's been president now for six years um, and, as we know, is recently re-elected, um, which was expected, but th- these were the first elections where there was really any chance of the opposition mm-hmm. taking over the, mm-hmm. um, the ruling party. And I guess that's a scary time, you know, for a new democracy. That's when you really see whether, you know, what path they're, go- they're going to take. Um, and I think a lot of people in Botswana actually, you know, weren't aware that there were any anything like this going on. And, and many think that, you know, the um, the party is shoot straighting and, and the elections were, you know, perfectly mm-hmm. 
Isn't that, I mean, isn't that the the scariest time when the incumbent Mm. does potentially sense or does sense a potential loss of power? Uh, And And I mean, we're not there yet, so. Yeah. Well, I mean, the closer (laughs) we do get to that, it becomes scarier and scarier because the, you know, the the ruling party then is faced with a fork in the road. Which way do you go? Do you go the way of, of, uh, of an oppressive tyrant, uh, intimidating government? Mm. Uh, or do you just, you know, um, let let your reins go peacefully, and, well, and it's very few. It's very, not very often that it happens that the peaceful option um, is the one that gets taken. Mm. Well, I mean, in Karma's uh, um, case, I think being a, a former military uh, senior officer and now being involved in politics, you you kind of do a little bit of both. Um, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, being a Bob Mugabe be, style. Yeah, right. y- y- neither a Mugabe nor a Mandela, but something. Well, somewhere in between where you're looking at um, very, very, um, I don't want to say surreptitious and covert intimidation, mm. as you, uh, you know, as you, you're explaining there. Mm. But at the same time, the elections themselves, um, at least from what I've read and what I've seen, mm. appear to have been held quite freely, quite fairly right. and, and quite transparently, um, which I think Botswana cannot get away from anymore. Um, that said, I don't think, I don't think military intimidation, or not necessarily military intimidation, I don't think electoral intimidation is enough to save karma at this point, Mm -hmm. especially now that I I suspect opposition parties smell blood. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I think that's nothing quite like, um, feeling like you have a chance, I think, to carry on the, you know, carry on the opposition. I think the, the BDP was also carried through by the fact that the, um, public media space is really dominated by the state. Um, so people in the rural areas, you know, we were in Gaborone, um, mm. you know, don't really hear about these things. Um, so I don't know. I guess as that starts to change, mm. people. Well, I mean, that's you know, not th- th- that's a problem mm. that we face in South Africa as well. Is the only mm. media that gets out to the rural population is generally SABC. Um, mm. created content. Mm. You know, the SABC mm. radio reaches 22 million people, uh, in this country, which is a major part of the, of the population. And, and something that we saw in the last elections was the split between the rural and the urban vote, where, um, the decline in, in, in the ANC's popularity in urban areas was more marked than, than, than the rural areas. And we're seeing this play out over and over again. And why media will always remain such a big, mm target and such a big mm. space for any government in terms of um in, in terms of getting the the necessary uh, vote and and backing of the mm. of those people or keeping scandals out of the limelight so that they don't they don't lose their position of power mm. um and we're moving on to another story that you worked on this week um uh, was the story of of sort of a uh, very uh, in some ways touching, in some ways sad, I guess, the story mm-hmm. of Jenna Lowe and what she's done as a, um, to sort of, um, take the organ donor movement to social media. It's quite an inspiring story. You, you got to chat to her over last week, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Um, it really is an amazing story. I think a lot of people have heard of it now, um, uh, particularly probably in the, the younger generations. Um, Jenna's Get Me to 21 campaign, which was launched on, um, Facebook and YouTube and Twitter. Um, basically the idea behind it is, um, she personally invites people to join her at her 21st birthday by becoming an organ donor. Um, and she's, how old is she now? So she's she's 19. 19. And and she needs, she needs a lung transplant if she's going to make it to her 21st birthday. Um, 
Yeah, she she was diagnosed with pulmonary um, arterial hypertension, which is quite a rare disease a couple of years ago. Um, and since then, actually advocated for you know awareness for PH prior to to moving on to um, the organ donor cause. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean she's she really is just a really really great person. And it's it's actually difficult because you know I like speaking to her. I was really really moved by her story and um, just her her the absence of anger you know in that situation in which she's found herself and her determination to to bring something good out of it rather than, you know, just questioning the, the unfairness that she's in this position. Um, but also how she's really determined not to be thought of as this. She, she, you know, she doesn't think of herself as an inspirational person. So it's difficult because on the one hand, you know, I want to call her extraordinary. On the other hand, I know that, that that's not actually how she wants to come across. Um, and she very much sees herself as an ordinary person who's, you know, just trying to do the best she can for other people who are, who find themselves in a similar situation to her. Um, but it has been incredible to see the effect that this campaign has had, yeah, I mean, just for, for her personally. I mean, so she's amazing. had... Uh, so the campaign is run purely by her and her family, primarily her mom. Um, her sisters also help out quite a bit, I think, um, with getting it out there. Um, but just through, through the campaign alone, um, they're about... I, th- I think it must be nearing about 5,000 new donors just through Get Me to 21. Um, and that is an incredible number considering that in South Africa, only 0.2% of the population is even registered as an organ donor. I mean, she's had a tremendous impact on getting young people especially, I think, you know, just to say, well, actually, yeah, sure, I want to be an organ donor. You know, let me sign up. Um, I hadn't signed up before hearing about the campaign, um, you know, not because I'm against it in any way. I really just hadn't thought of it. Um, and the studies which have looked at um, attitudes among South Africans, um, which I researched um, for the story, reflected a, a similar sort of um, finding, you know, that it's more about a lack of awareness um, than it is about, you know, unwillingness to donate in a lot of cases. Obviously, there are cultural barriers, but not, not as prominent mm-hmm. as you might. You might some, some interesting um, um, facts that came out of that, that mm. um, was that for every person who signs up as an organ owner, there's a potential that, you know, that their organs could go to seven different people as, as a maximum, mm. which is, which is incredible to think that it you could incredible. save seven people's lives. And, no, it's and not yeah. necessarily one, one organ, yeah. you know, one donor to one recipient. It's, yeah, yeah it's, exactly. it's exponent- well, exponential. And the other one, which was quite strange and not really something that, um, you know, uh, probably requires more research is that, um, women are more likely to sign up as, as organ donors than, yeah, than men, which is quite strange. Yeah, I found that interesting, and I actually wanted to, you know, hypothesize on why this could be, but really couldn't, um, you know, pinpoint a, a good reason for it. But, yeah, apparently it's a, it's about two-thirds women who are organ donors, and uh, even in Jenna's campaign, um, it's been primarily women who are, well, primarily, um, you know, more than 50% women who've responded. To put on the broad brush, I would almost say it's it's an empathy thing. Um, I, I, you know, it, it sounds awful to say, but I, I suspect mm. maybe South African men are just, in, you know, not as, I don't know, um, caring, I guess. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I, just a thought. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. To, I, I would like to believe that's not the mm, case, you know, that they, not, there yeah. isn't a gender divide in that way. But um, <laughs> It would be interesting to I'm sort of, sure. you know, match it up against, um, you know, blood donation statistics. Yeah, it would be. Uh, and, and see if, the, if, be. if it is there. I it mean, might also be the way that the campaigns are structured, mm. you know, who, who they're targeting and, and who responds. Um, but I don't, I don't really know about that. Um, but also, I think it's important to mention that in South Africa, there are a lot of structural 
structural issues as well. Um, we really need um, more transplant coordinators who are trained emergency care mm-hmm. nurses. Um, we only have about 20 of them across the whole country. And without these people, you know, the, the families can't be approached um, to be asked whether they'd be prepared to, you know, donate the organs of their, loved, their recently deceased loved ones. Um, so, yeah, they, they play an incredibly important role, and we really just don't have enough of them. So a lot of the transplant opportunities that we do have, um, I think, don't, don't actually translate into donations. So if you're listening to the mm. podcast, um, I seriously urge you to go, go check out mm. Get Me to 21. Uh, it's Definitely. a fin- fantastic initiative. And, um, yeah, I mean, hopefully Jenna gets her new set of lungs mm. and gets to 21. Uh, we'll certainly be rooting for her. Um, on the line today, we've got uh, Brooke Spector, Associate Editor at the Daily Maverick. Uh, Brooks, uh, how are you and how is your gin and tonic today? <laughs> Good afternoon. It wasn't a gin and tonic, but it was a it was a roast beef sandwich on rye bread and a hot and a hot chili pepper. But uh, nevertheless, <laughs> but we're sitting by the pool. Uh, okay, good. Working on your tan. That's an image I really didn't need to get get, get yeah, out of my head. About the next story, I'm chained to the computer for. <laughs> uh, Brooks, you uh, wrote a piece on civil disobedience yesterday that uh, I quite enjoyed, um, and, and you tried to sort of. Relayed into the South African context. Um, g- tell us a little bit more about your thoughts on that. Uh, you there? Yep, Brooks. Hello. Yep, yeah, still I'm here. Sorry, I heard a click and a whir, and t- uh, telecommunications technology sent us apart. Um, no, what I did was, um, I, it's it's really easy to get annoyed and frustrated and sort of quivering with rage about all the the waste, fraud, mismanagement, theft, and general thuggery about with, with government accounts. And it, it's very easy to be sort of reduced to an impotent kind of fury, you know, uh, dashing off letters, angry letters to the newspapers, or, you know, in, increasingly intemperate posts on Facebook or Twitter, or calling up a radio station and just saying, I am aghast, this kind of thing. But I said, you know, let's, let's look at this historically, and let's look at this in a bigger context. Uh, what is civil disobedience, and where does it take a society? That was the the pitch, and I and I reached back to to a man by the name of Henry David Thoreau, uh, an American philosopher that in the 1840s and 50s, um, he was the he wrote Walden, which most people have heard of about uh, the man who goes off to the woods to live by a pond so that he can live his life deliberately rather than at the depredations of, of everyday life. But he also wrote this extraordinarily uh, important and influential essay on civil disobedience, and he effectively defined it for the first time. Uh, he defined it so well that people as Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi picked up on his idea and worked it into their political social philosophies, uh, philosophies of action, for social change. And in Thoreau's case, it started out with, um, there was, uh, the U.S. had declared war on Mexico in 1845, uh, in part to uh, officially conquer Texas and then to gain control of California, um, but at least in a sub-Rosa kind of way to expand slavery into other territories. And Thoreau was sufficiently incensed by it that he refused to pay a necessary poll tax uh, and the authorities dutifully arrested him, uh, and although his friends eventually bailed him out, they were embarrassed that one of their set would spend 
to spend nights in jail, uh, it propelled him into writing about civil disobedience. How does one formulate a way to register with the government other than simply at the election that you disagree fundamentally with the government policy and you're prepared, in, as, as Thoreau explained, that you were prepared to go to jail if necessary so as not to be part of, of, of this implacable machinery, and how do you then bring together enough people so that the government is stopped in its tracks from doing a particular policy? He wasn't advocating revolution. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't saying that, that you have to go storm the Winter Palace or anything like that. But he was saying you have to focus on actual policies and figure out ways to get them to change. And the way he, he best conceived of it was uh, to withhold the legitimacy of taxes or other revenues until effectively you convince the government uh, to change its policy. And, of course, there is a South African context to this as well. In the, excuse me, in the 1980s, uh, there was a significant effort uh, at the withholding of rents and uh, electricity payments in many townships across the country as a strike against government uh, in response to the increasing uh, occupation of the townships by police and even the military. And uh, there was one year, and I'm trying to remember whether it was 1986 or 87, uh, the year the year of the Black Christmas in which there was effectively a purchasing strike against merchants and businesses uh, for the traditional buying of gifts and foodstuffs for, for the Christmas holiday period. And so what I was doing was drawing together these, these various strains and saying, is there a mechanism in all of this to register not just an annoyance with, but a way out for people who are entirely tired of uh, the headlines that they see? But, and here was the real, the, the real challenge, is the middle class, the people who pay a good chunk of the taxes and who make uh, make these annoyances, are they prepared to be arrested for the purpose of registering their discontent with the way the government proceeds? Mm. And that's a question that I don't have an answer for, it, and I'm not sure anybody does yet. Does the... Uh Opposition against Urban Tolling Alliance uh, ring a lot of or, or draw a lot of parallels from uh, from Thoreau's philosophies. Well, it does, uh, and I, I made reference to it uh, in the article that, in many ways, I think this was the the first moment in the new dispensation where this had happened. Um, now, all right, there's a residual effect here still of people who refuse to pay rent or, or electricity bills in townships in the 1980s and 1990s, and some people still do. Um, but the urban poll, uh, the, the alliance against uh, the urban, uh, the e-polling process was a new way of, of, of recognizing this. I mean, I, I, know ver- I personally know very few people who have an e-tag, and I don't know all that many people who are prepared to pay the bills when they show up. Um, but the problem or the challenge is, going to come if someone is dragged to court or even issued a summons or even arrested for non-payment, what's the response of everybody else at that point? And that's, that's where we, 
we have to look back at, at Thoreau's essay on civil disobedience again. Well, sorry, I would just to, to, to jump in there, I'd say um, the reason ETOLs, at least in South Africa, encouraged that, that mass civil de- disobedience and the reason why you could make a case to, to argue that it's working is because the, the, the costs of disobedience is so low. Um, you know, there, there isn't even a, a throw kind of case where you get arrested and even spend one night in jail. And I think even that would, if there was a threat and a, a reliable threat that there's even one night you will spend in jail, um, I, I think you, you, you would find tag registration in this country quite, you know, it would increase quite considerably, um, straight after that. Uh, that's my thought anyway. Well, you know, you could, that's quite, that's quite the point. Uh, that the middle class, which is primarily the middle class, broadly speaking, we're not talking about uh, upper upper middle here. We're talking about the average Joe who has a car and who has to use the highways. Um, almost called them freeways, but of course they're not free anymore. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I mean, when, when you reach the point where there is a where there's a real personal cost, uh, the middle class traditionally in history in South Africa no differently than almost any other place, is effectively designed to be law-abiding because that's how, that's how they've moved forward. They get up in the morning, they go to work, they pay their bills, uh, and they rise gradually through the system and, and, and profit thereby. Uh, when it comes to that moment where somebody is being dragged off to the pokey, then you know whether or not the cost, the cost was too, hot, too, too hard, too high to bear, or whether or not you find vast numbers of people rallying to that person's defense. Um, in Thoreau's case, of course, his, his transcend, uh, transcendentalist friends in the, in the Boston Academy quietly got together and paid his poll tax for him so he could go back and write his essays, um, even if it was just for that, for that bit. But the question that I guess everybody has to ask is, have we reached that moment where... Somebody will engage in a defining act of civil disobedience against the shenanigans at the SABC or uh, the fact that ESCOM wants to spend 40-some million rand to, to buy uh, breakfast with uh, officials uh, in a, some sort of spurious public relations gesture. Will people then make that choice, and if so... How are they going to do it, quote-unquote, spontaneously? And how are they going to respond if the authorities decide that there's a test case to be made here? Well, I mean, I would say it's certainly in a, just like any any good uh, insurgency or, or, or proto-revolution um, you, th- th- there's a third option where you could try as you as you finished off there you could try and incite a reaction from the government and create that that violent reaction that seems so disproportionate on the global stage and particularly with you know the way media and communications is structured these days um, that's certainly a very easy mistake to make by the government by wielding as you said in your article the complete monopoly of, of, of force that they, they, they own. Um, and I think if, if that happens, you could very quickly, uh, rapidly uh, encourage uh, mass uh, disobedience and I, I dare say mass resistance against the government. I mean, not, not to say that that's – I don't think ETOLs is particularly going to create a battle of Algiers in, um, in, in South Africa. But I, I think 
the middle class, as you say, we, we, we like our stuff too much to want to risk our own asses. Um, what we need is the, basically the blue collar, the working classes sounds horrible, but this is, it's, it's the historical reality I find as well for most insurgencies is if you are able to get the masses involved, even in, in any sort of way, so that at least you are not directly threatened initially, um, I think that's that's a pretty good catalyst for for resistance. The case in point being during Mandela's funeral, the the, the booing of President Zuma at mm-hmm. the stadium, um, the middle class. I talk here broadly, um, as well as uh, most media sort of outlets were saying, is this the tipping point? Is this the cusp of you know the the, the you know is this is this going to be the end of the government as we as we know it? And sort of all sorts of noises about that, but it petered away because there there wasn't that that mass mobilization that the middle class can then harness um, almost as a sort of revolutionary stallion as uh, you know as has happened in the Arab Spring and has happened many many times before um, and I think we just don't we, we, we don't have that critical mass yet um, and I don't know if it'll be one specific uh, instant or if it's a violent reaction from the government or if it's a, a collection of etols and service delivery and 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 I mean I, I'm not sure if think, at all. I think you need to tell listeners you're listening to pol- International Political Theory 101. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the reading assignments will be handed out tomorrow. It will be an essay due on Friday. Uh, but I reference mean, correctly. What, 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 this, uh, <laughs> what, what this does do is it, it, if all those things are true, it pushes a government into either being uh, resistant and obdurate or, supp- or supple and resilient. Uh, at some point, a government says, you know, cost for doing X is just too high. We have to get rid of it or fix it or do it differently. Uh, and Etolls is a pretty good example of that. But how does a government do that with um, power outages or uh, wasteful spending at the national broadcaster? or um, the website for the free state government that costs more than the national, than the national budget of a small country. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, those are the problems. Those are things that make you really upset if you pay your taxes and behave like a good boy. Uh, they may not be quite so annoying to people um, who have even more immediate concerns in their life, but a, a, uh, I, another political philosopher that I, I like, to, to look back on is Alexis de Tocqueville, a Frenchman who visited the U.S. in the 1830s to try to figure out how American democracy made any sense. But he wrote an, another later story about czarist Russia, and uh, he defined political problems for czarist Russia. He said, the most dangerous time for a regime is when a bad regime attempts to reform. And when he meant when he said bad, he didn't necessarily mean evil. He meant bad in the sense of incoherent or inept or uh, inefficient, as well as not good in a in a more normative sense. And uh, the government here faces these challenges and doesn't always have an easy way to get them fixed. I mean, who's going to leap forward to stop the bling excesses of government departments? Who's going to to really rise up and say we've got to fix the SABC or else and who is going to move forward to say ESCOM you cannot spend enormous gouts of cash on a gymnasium for your top employees when you need to borrow 
extraordinary amounts of money from the government lest the lights go out. That's th- Those are, I, mean, I don't know if you want to call them middle-class concerns, but they're awfully abstruse and divorced from the immediate vicissitudes of everyday life, aren't they? Mm. Absolutely. Uh, Brooks, we're, we're almost out of time. Um, for you, because we've got Marianne time, we're about to get sure. the latest update uh, on the Shrindavani case from Cape Town. But before you go, whoa! Uh, before you go, and before we uh, zap your uh, your eardrums to pieces, um, a, a crossing to Brooks Spectre wouldn't be complete without a quick um, theatre comment. Um, we usually ask you what's good on at the theatre that you can recommend, but I see you've been gushing about Warhorse. We saw it on Sunday, and um I, I am amazed. The uh, the people who brought those horses on stage, they made them look like puppets, uh, and they were so well-behaved. No, it, all kidding aside, it is an extraordinary piece of theater, and you will hate yourself if you don't go see it. Uh, it's not. It's too intense for little kids, even though it's a children's story, uh, eight, ten years old and above, maybe. Uh, but it is it is such a piece of beautiful, beautifully portrayed theater about loyalty and love and uh, the the nature of war uh, that you must go. And then on a, that's over at the Monte Cassino Theater. And then at the Market Theater, starting on Thursday, is, is a work called The Last Anniversary, which is a, a play built around uh, a theater company that is doing an opera, uh, which was... Uh, composed by Jan Meyerowitz and written to a libretto by the author Langston Hughes. So it's a joint South Africa, French, and a couple of other European countries' production. It's touring very successfully in Europe, and now it's uh, it's coming to Johannesburg on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I believe. Warhorse runs through the early part, um, uh, late November, I believe, and then moves to Cape Town. So go see both. And... Uh, Consider your theatre budget well spent for the month. Good. Thanks, uh, Brooks Spector, for joining us from uh, from Parkhurst. Uh, we'll chat to you um, soon. Uh, on the line from Cape Town, we've got Marianne Tam. Uh, Marianne, are you there? I'm here. Here I am. Hello. Mm-hmm. I, I believe you um, you've been suffering through another day of trial at the Shrindavani trial. Yes, it's been an interesting morning because, um, of course, one of the issues from the start of the trial has been whether any evidence that uh, would point to uh, any relationship Srindawani had uh, with people other than Annie were admissible, particularly his relationship with the German master, Leopold Leiser, whom he met online through Gaydar. And both teams <laughs> have been trying to... Uh, defense, of course, doesn't, uh, is questioning the relevance of, of uh, this information, while the state is trying to prove that it shows a context um, in which uh, the infidelity, as they call it, happened. Judge Traversa ruled this morning that the evidence about the personal nature of the relationship, including the fact that Shrin had slept over at the German Meister's apartment on two occasions, was inadmissible. And the defense also posited it's been quite interesting in court this morning, saying that Annie Dewani had broken off the engagement in May 2010, and so Shrin had had ample time to actually extricate himself from the relationship then, yet he chose to continue to have the relationship and marry her. So that was this morning's um, proceedings. And uh, just before lunch, we were listening to driver Zola Tongo, who um, is serving an an, an, uh, 18-year sentence, and his version of the events was quite striking. 
is how much of this crime was caught on CCTV. Uh, it's a crime committed in the 21st century. And uh, obviously the most interesting part as well is that the, what happened in Google the actual killing and hijacking itself is not on camera, which indicates, um, I think, a meta-narrative of how townships are kind of left out of, of, of the bigger policing picture. Um, Marianne, have you noticed um, since the, 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 the other trial has ended um, that international media interest has picked up again in, in this case? Yes. Uh, some of the journalists have returned uh, from, from Pretoria and are attending this particular case. It's a bit of a scrum every morning in terms of getting our ringside seats. But certainly there's much, there's much less uh, international um, focus. I think particularly the British media is here and are interested, in, and the BBC is here, and most of the, of the dailies and the weeklies. Um, there's, very, there's no American interest in it, um, and very little European interest. So it's mostly a South African and a, and a UK case. And given the amount of, of obviously local and international uh, focus on the Oscar trial, have you noticed, and, and obviously having years of experience in, 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 uh, in, in court cases and covering court cases, have you noticed any significant changes in uh, how this trial is being conducted? Um, I think what's interesting is to see how the international media responds to the rulings or how the courts use evidence procedures in court itself, what is admissible and what's not admissible. It's interesting to look that today the Daily Mirror in the UK have published uh, Leopold Leiter's entire statement, which was made available to us uh, through various channels, but South African media have chosen not to um, exploit that particular stage, but it is rather sensational because the court has ordered that it is not admissible. So there's an interesting um, a difference in approach to what the media in South Africa is willing to run. It was said this morning that we self-censor, and we were uh, very quick to argue that it had nothing to do with self-censoring, but it has to do with obeying the law of South Africa, which is quite interesting. So the, the, I wrote a piece last week in the Daily Mavericks for me personally about how transformed the courtroom is um, since the 30 years I was last here, the diversity of the media bench, the um, attitudes of the court orders and other people, and, and the respect for the, the rights of not only the accused but of witnesses. And that's very, very evident and obvious to me. Um, Marianne, which way do you think, you know, it's sort of a, a boxing match, you know, one round to the defense, one round to the prosecution. What, what would you put the score at as now? I would say the defense three, um, the state zero at this point. Wow. Um, okay. And uh, and how long is, is the trial expected to run for? This is not. <laughs> run through December and sentencing is, is if, if he is found guilty uh, well sentencing means either he gets off or he gets sent to jail is expected to happen early next year but um, I, I have a suspicion that it, it might end sooner I'm not quite sure I think after the various witnesses have been uh, brought before court that the defense might call for a for a, uh, an acquittal um, okay and and yesterday's indication by the NPA to to a or give the indication that they would go ahead with an appeal on the Oscar case. What's your take on that? Well, I think if, if, if the, the NPA in this particular case feels that the judge did not take evidence into account that it presented, um, they obviously clearly feel that they have a winnable case. I'm not sure whether that is the case, but um, as you know, it's up to the state and up to the NPA to present a case that the judge then has to, to weigh up uh, in terms of evidence. And in this particular case, um, the state so far uh, has not presented any evidence which points to any motive whatsoever for this extremely bizarre and strange killing. 
Um, so in the Oscar case, I think there, there are more legal issues that you could argue, um, and those who've been following the case know all about bonus against yard, is that's not a legal um, issue in this particular case. So um, I think in that case it probably would, would succeed. I'm not sure whether that would happen in this case. All right. Marianta from Cape Town following the Srinivani case, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Julie. Cheers, cheers Marianne. Um, okay, so we've got a couple of minutes before we round up. Um, guys, what's, uh, what's ahead for the week? What, uh, what are you expecting to come up in first thing? Uh, you know, what are you keeping your eye on, John? Uh, I've got my eye on wine is what I've got my eye on. I, uh, <laughs> um, definitely going to be hitting wine next this week. Um, I think, I believe it starts tomorrow, correct? I think yeah, Wednesday, that's Thursday, right, Friday. Yeah, yeah. Maverick Media Partners um, of the Wine Expo, uh, happening at the Santon Convention Center, uh, Wednesday, um, Thursday, and Friday. I, I should also clarify that long before I started working for for Daily Maverick, I've been a fan of, of Winex and, and, and uh, I have many, many black holes in my memory from visiting the, the Santa Expo <laughs> Center there. Um, so, uh, you know, from that aside, I think um, what I, I, I should be probably paying attention to aside from, from the wine will be obviously the, the battle for Caban still goes on despite mm-hmm. it not being in the news. Um, I, I do expect we'll hear something about that going, uh, going through the week, either a a definitive victory for the Kurds um, slash, you know, um, uh, Kurdish Shias coming in there or uh, uh, or a pushback by ISIS um, coming through there. I, I suppose we'll see either which way that goes. There'll always be Ebola, of course, sadly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think, um, you know, aside from that, uh, all I can say is coming up in terms of dates and important things is just uh, those of you old enough to remember uh, is Remembrance Day is coming up in a couple of weeks. So if you see some, some geriatrics at the mall selling pop Copies. Um, it's not gay pride. It is actually um, something uh, to do with with veterans and just sort of remembering, um, you know, the, the the soldiers who have fought and fallen for whatever cause. It's it's completely apolitical and an entirely honourable uh, uh, charity. I think fully support it. Um, you mentioned ISIS. Uh, just reminded me of of, of one or two um, sort of weird stories that came out of the last week. Is a Belgian chocolate company called Isis that had to rebrand and change its name for obvious reasons. And I believe the dog in Downton Abbey is also called Isis. Oh, lovely. So, also like the, uh, which is rather unfortunate for the poor fella. There, there's a animated series called Archer as well, where their organization, which ironically is a counter-terror spy organization is called Isis. Um, so they've apparently also renamed themselves as well. Uh, very unfortunate if you happen to buy a T-shirt or something for the show. That would, that would uh, and also one of, the, one of the funniest reports uh, I read last night as well was a, uh, I think it was American Airlines flight from LAX to London um, was aborted uh, when one of the passengers was busy on his phone, you know, at, you know, the minutes before the uh, plane was due to take off and uh, was looking for a Wi-Fi hotspot and noticed the one right at the top was called the Al-Qaeda Free Terror Network uh, as a Wi-Fi hotspot, and as a result, was it stable? Yeah, um, I love the word. You know, they just made sure to keep free in there, uh, which was great. And uh, and the Al Qaeda network was obviously quite quite funny. But yeah, the flight was uh, was uh, was grounded. Uh, everyone was forced to disembark. People were put over in hotels. People, you know, obviously missed their, their business appointments. Um, yeah, because uh, some smart ass thought it would be a, a fun idea to to rename his Wi-Fi hotspot. 
spot on a on an American Airlines plane from LAX. That stuff's actually no joke. Uh, my my brother and I had a conversation about various like if we were hypothetically going to hijack a plane. This is years ago, um, you know, at, at Durban Airport uh, International Airport, and we were um, you know just talking hypothetically because you know that that seemed like a good thing to do in the queue while waiting to to <laughs> to fly. And apparently, my brother got pulled over as he checked in by the police, and they said, "Where was that guy you were with?" He said, he's, he's my brother. He's, he's gone home now. He just dropped me off and he got, he got questioned for a while. Mm. Um, so anyone who thinks our counter terror, um, police are not, are not vigilant. Wow. They're, they're at least somewhat vigilant. That, that, that's actually quite um, surprising and quite impressive. Yeah, I believe it's now actually a proper crime. So, yeah. you know, just as well it happened. So before next time you're in, you're in the market for a body cavity search, um, <laughs> you know, feel if free you're feeling to lonely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Andrea, anything on the radar for you? Uh, you're looking at, uh, anything, you, you know, you've done a couple of health pieces so far, done really well on, on, on DM. Uh, I'm not sure. Putting you, <laughs> putting you on this spot. Uh, the the FT, uh, our resident FT factician. Um, all right, guys. I think we're uh, that's it for the week. Uh, that's the Daily Maverick show on Cliff Central. You can catch the podcast. We're now on iTunes. You can subscribe to iTunes. It'll download automatically, or you can catch the podcast from the Daily Maverick website or the CliffCentral.com website. We look forward to having you with us next week. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com.